Hi, I'm Kieran Cook, and welcome to At Source Podcast, a place where natural health and well-being are at the forefront of the conversation. Gain useful insights direct from the source from doctors, industry experts, wellness advocates, and everything in between. This is a place for busy people who want to get to the core of health and wellness with information about the latest health advances and trends. In this series, we talk with and learn from inspiring leaders from all walks of life, touching on important topics that will help answer some of the key questions about natural health, well-being, fitness, and all things direct from the source. Dr. Libby Weaver is a nutritional biochemist and a 13 times best-selling author, speaker, and founder of the food-based supplement range BioBlends. Her mission is to empower and inspire people to take charge of their health and happiness through her books, live events and online courses. A respected international speaker, Dr Libby's expertise in nutritional biochemistry has led her to share the stage with Marianne Williamson, Sir Richard Branson, Tony Robbins and Dr Oz, as well as many female thought leaders. It's no surprise that when it comes to achieving and maintaining ultimate health and well-being, Hollywood stars Hugh Jackman and Deborah Lee Furness describe her as a one-stop shop in achieving and maintaining ultimate health and well-being. It's wonderful to have you on the podcast today, Libby. Welcome to the At Source podcast, powered by Nature Bee. Let's get to the heart of health matters, and that's a quote from you, and I love it because it's all about drilling into, you know, the source or the essence of, of these topics of conversation. So I wanted to kick off today by asking you about your journey. Uh, today you're the epitome of ultimate health and well-being, but I wanted to know how it all started and if you can tell us about some of your major achievements. So a couple of questions in there. Okay, well, I grew up in Tamworth in country New South Wales in Australia and we had chickens in the backyard and we grew some of our own veggies and had fruit trees. So I had an awareness from a very young age, I guess, of where food came from. And my parents talked to me about, you know, you get an orange and it was just in conversation. It's rich in vitamin C and that helps you if you get a cold, it might not last as long or it might help you to not get a cold in the first place. So there was sort of those sorts of conversations uh, in our household. Uh, and I grew up very, I loved writing growing up. So I thought I probably wanted to study communications. I ended up doing psychology at uni and then nutrition and dietetics because I realized that all I really wanted to write about was human behavior, why people did what they did, even though they had the knowledge that they did, because I could see that often knowledge alone wasn't enough to drive behavioral change. Uh, and so I did, yeah, nutrition and dietetics, did honours and then did a PhD in biochemistry. So I ended up spending 14 years at uni, which I know makes me sound really thick and like I probably went to the pub too much, which may, may not be true, um, but I very much love learning and I still do. And since then, I've worked with people one-on-one. I've worked in some big health retreats. Uh, I've written 13 books and I've had the crazy privilege of being able to speak all over the world, which obviously that all changed uh, at the start of 2020. And I have one of the gifts of the last almost two years has been I've been able to honour my more homebody self, which has been um, something that I love and am going to continue to do mm. and have now got my own chickens and my own veggie patches, so I've sort of come full circle, if you like. So I don't sort of see any of that as achievements. It's just, I just, it's just what I've done. It's life. Yeah, it yeah. Is. and it's kind of that post COVID era, right, where things have sort of pivoted and we've been at home and we've had to sort of, you know, coexist with that and actually build business around that. So Yeah, exactly. And we it forces you to innovate and it forces you to really consider 
what is life like for people? What do people need? How can you better support people given that this is the situation? And then the benefit of that for me as a, an introverted little person is that, um, yeah, I've got to spend more time at home and get, some, get my own chickens. So it's been good. It's been great. And, uh, you know, it's interesting because what you talk about in those early formative years are, you know, more that grassroots stuff. Uh, kind of, I think about it like granddad's back garden where he grew vegetables as, you know, sort of up to my waist and the goodness, you know, getting the goodness back um, into our diets and into sort of being, you know, making more conscious choices around the food that we're eating, that grassroots stuff. So, as a city girl, I sort of I slightly envy what you what you are able to achieve, and we will we will touch later. I think in today's conversation around perhaps some of the the indicators that you might have noticed, you know, since COVID's hit in that wellness space, working one on one with people, I'm certain that there's been some shifts in in needs in the work that you're doing, um, and I'm sure it's all online at the moment too, um, which again is a little bit of a game changer. So really interesting. I mean you. You've touched on being privileged, you know, and blessed to be working on a world stage with some really interesting people who um, obviously look up to you for guidance, um, you know. But how do you look after yourself? Because you talk about being an introvert, and I do find that really interesting because you certainly don't look like an introvert when you do a TED talk and you present, and just everything you do just has so much energy around it. So I'm trying to sort of just understand a little bit about your own psyche. And you, you say yeah. you're an introvert, but you come across very much as an outward person outgoing it's because I'm doing the work in the world that I love and I I was the first person in my family to get a university education and again I never set out to do that I was just interested in learning more so I feel like that would all get wasted if I didn't speak about it so but to be able to do that work or the way that I really started to see that I was actually very introverted was uh the solitude is what gives me the energy to be able to go and do that stuff so when I am doing a TED talk or whatever it might be, it's that that energy comes because I care so much about this stuff. I care so much about people being able to look after themselves. And because I saw really on in my working life that just supporting people with better knowledge wasn't always enough for them to be able to do that. That was where I brought in the, well, I want to help people answer the question, why do you do what you do, even though you know what you know, which is uh, so that's I spend a lot of my time reading, researching, uh, so that, that I can then educate. Mm. Uh, there, yeah, really, probably add nature research, writing, uh, teaching, or educating, and nature. They're probably my my four big things in the world. Yeah, so, that's that's yeah. great, and you've answered that just really beautifully. I mean, I did read, and when I was you know digging around a little bit about you, that you do love writing, and if you had a choice in an ideal world, <laughs> you'd be a farmer. It was it a nonfiction farming writer. <laughs> I thought that's an interesting kind of synergy of talents. Is there one of those out there? <laughs> Oh, who knows? But I love getting my hands dirty. Uh, I love growing food. It's one of the most rewarding things ever. And then I want to yeah, research about all of that. I'm fascinated by the soil. Mm. Uh, I love the idea of yeah, writing about all that stuff. So they're my sort of my two things. It's funny that you found that that you read that. It's very very accurate. Very true. Yeah, yeah, digging deep. So I know. Of course, I find it really interesting, and I agree with you that knowledge. They say knowledge is power, but there is something well beyond that because you sort of have internal drivers, things that actually motivate you to seek out things that may not be productive. And so your work, you know, and, and you, you reference um, Dr. Viktor Frankl, you know, the Austrian uh, 
psychiatrist and reading about him and he was at school of thought with Freud and, you know, searching for meaning and being able to adapt particular attitudes for change is probably the essence, right, that drives you to do the work that you do? Very much. So to help, I guess we, we're, we're not taught at school that we that all our thoughts that we think aren't true. So until we start to recognise that so much of what we think isn't even true, a lot of those thoughts will then, if we think them enough times, they become our beliefs and our beliefs then drive our behaviour. And so we might we might not have any idea. We know what we believe about things outside of ourselves. We know what we think about, you know, that political party or the family that lives in that house down the road. So we're good at identifying those beliefs. But when it comes to our beliefs about ourselves. So who do I have to be to be loved? It takes us a lot longer to answer those questions because our beliefs about ourselves are all tied up in that. And I help, part of what I try to do in my work, whether it's a book or an event, is to help people identify the traits, T-R-A-I-T-S, the traits that they want other people to see in them. And I call them forward words. And it's as if we walk around with these words slathered across our foreheads that we're desperate for others to see in us. And when I do that work with, particularly with women, some of the common words that come out are, I need people to see me as kind, thoughtful, selfless, or it might be intelligent, independent, courageous, strong, perfect is another really common one. And so once you know how you need other people to see you, the next time you're stressed, it's really helpful to pause and think, am I perceiving someone is seeing me in the opposite way to one of these words? Because mostly the answer will be yes. And quite often when we're in that state, when we're worrying what another thinks of us, when we're perceiving that another might be disapproving of us, even though it's not conscious, that will often lead us to then make some lousy choices. So we'll say, I'm only having one glass of wine. And before you know it, you've had the whole bottle. You'll say, I'm having two biscuits. You've had half the packet before you even realize what you're doing. So there's so much that's that goes on in our, in our brains that ends up Mm. driving our behavior Mm. and, that's that's really what fascinates me at the moment and uh, what I think when we can really get to the heart of how that was created in us and so that we can see that that's not actually who we are. They are traits we took on as little human beings to try to survive because as little humans, we need other people to give us food and clothing and shelter so that we can literally survive. Yeah. And in attempting to maintain that security and safety for ourselves, we start to learn the behaviours that others approve of. And as adults, we still think we need to demonstrate those. And even though they might be lovely and it makes us have lots of friends and that's all beautiful, it's really tricky when you feel like you have no option other than to be that. It's when you have no flexibility in how you can handle other people seeing you leads to a really stressful life and often some a lot of lousy choices. Well, that's really well said. And I think, you know, listening to one of your TED Talks, you talk about the old brain and the new brain. And I really loved the way you broke that down. And I feel like we need to extrapolate that a little bit more because then you're kind of giving a rationale as to why we get into this cycle of, you know, this 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 behaviour set, right? So maybe yeah. just maybe just share a little about the prehistoric and the, the you know, the old, the old us versus the new us. And I love the way you timeline it and sort of point out that we've actually only existed, you know, this new this new era that we're in is actually really new because that to me was a little bit of an epiphany I thought she's right yeah it's a tight so the way we now live it's literally a drop in the ocean of time compared to the way we have slowly gradually evolved over at least 150,000 years that we've been on the planet and 
it's very the the the, the way that we now live with uh, mobile phones, the internet, fast food. It, it's the, obviously it's yeah, it's so much has changed and it's changed so quickly. So we have two thought systems, and this is uh, this is the work of an extraordinary psychologist called Daniel Kahneman. He won the Nobel Prize for Economics quite a while ago now, but fascinating to me that a psychologist won a Nobel Prize mm. in Economics. But That's right. <laughs> And he was the one, Daniel Kahneman was the guy who first, his research was the first to identify that the human brain actually has two thought systems and they don't talk to each other. So I, for ease of understanding and so people can remember it so easily, I talk, I call them old brain and new brain and I've tried to take it further in applying it to human health and the way we look after ourselves. So our old brain's been there from the get-go and it's partly why as a species we're still here because it helps us to survive. So it's unconscious, so we don't know what the old brain has done, and it actually generates a feeling. And so for listeners who love the idea of feelings, that probably sounds appealing, and then there'll be listeners who don't like feelings <laughs> and they'll think, oh, I'm not happy with that. But the, what I mean in this context is it's an instantaneous response and that, that generates a feeling. So you might, be, you might have been out at night and you find yourself walking home at 2 a.m., and you read that in the town where you are, in the city where you are, you read the newspaper that morning and you saw the crime stats in that area at the moment are through the roof. But you've set out on this walk home thinking you'll be fine, but suddenly you hear footsteps behind you. You don't want to have to use your new thought system that came along much later in human evolution to have to do its thing. You need your old brain in that moment to at warp speed, at lightning speed with there being no conscious thought, you need to go, I read the paper this morning, the stats are terrible, I can hear footsteps, it's 2 a.m., it's pitch black, I'm running. So you don't want there to be any time between hearing the footsteps and running, you just run. That is the brilliance of our old brain. So it still has purpose. It's just that it's unconscious, it works at lightning speed, and it, but it runs off patterns and associations. And a lot of the patterns and associations we've created over our life actually now don't mean what they mean. So once upon a time, if a human in your tribe, if another human in your tribe walked past you and they didn't speak to you, your survival might literally be threatened because that might mean you're about to be ostracised. You might not have the, the gift of communal living and the fact that they're going to help you get food. So someone not speaking to you might have been a threat to your survival. Whereas now, if you're in the supermarket and an acquaintance walks past and normally you'd say hi, but on this occasion your acquaintance doesn't speak to you, they just put their head down and walk past, that old brain inside you still fires off even though you won't be conscious of it because remember the old brain's unconscious, but it'll still fire off, create a feeling that you're not aware of But what we now have in modern times is this second thought system, this new brain that we can come in and use. And new brain is currently optional, but it's conscious, so we know we're doing it. It can reason and we can use logic when we we apply it. But as I said, it's optional right now. So back in uh, our tribal days, we didn't have the opportunity to do this. But in the supermarket, when your acquaintance walks past, you do have that moment where you could stand there in the supermarket and think, hmm, I wonder what just happened. And quite often what you'll see if you were to do that in that moment is you feel like you've let that person down or that person doesn't like you. So in other words, you perceive some sort of disapproval coming from that other person when if you you could flip it and go, wow, that my acquaintance who just didn't speak to me, she looked like she had the weight of the world on her shoulders 
And if you were to actually go around and check in and say to her, wow, I saw you today, you didn't speak, what's the go? She might say, oh, my goodness, I hadn't had a shower. I was really hoping to not run into anyone I knew. Yeah. So we we do that all the time with our old brain firing off, yeah. creating a feeling, and we forget that we've got this new thought system, our new brain that can come in and actually work out the truth and apply reason. And there's a lot in the neuroscience space that talks about us as humans being sort of negatively hardwired, that the brain actually wants to hold on to the bad stuff and we sort of struggle at times to, you know, recall good memories. It's just something around how the brain works. So in a way that sort of instant default and that, you know, if you want to call it a misinterpretation or you didn't quite read it right, which feels native to us, Um, may actually not be quite the case. And I think it must take a long time to kind of rewire yourself to live with that more positive skew, Um, you know, because I think we do sort of operate out of the old brain quite a lot. Yeah, we do. And I'm really honest. Yeah, it's part of, I think it's part of, you know, human evolution is that we need to apply our new brain. We need to learn how to do that. And to be able to do that, we firstly have to understand how we think. So we have to understand these two thought systems because when we let the old brain run the show, it we usually have to numb the pain because our old brain usually leads us to feel unsafe in some way, whether it's we feel unsafe because someone doesn't like us or we feel unsafe because we've been yeah, ostracized from a group, whatever it is. And it will usually, but usually it's the perception that others are disapproving of us Mm. and it will usually lead us to make some lousy lifestyle choices. And so that's partly why when we have good knowledge, we don't necessarily consistently apply it because we haven't yet learned to consistently apply our new brain and see the truth, see the reality. Yeah, no, it's, it's good. I like the way you sort of share that. And I think just moving on to your outlook on health and obviously, you know, you have a PhD in nutritional biochemistry and I'm I am interested just in simple terms so that our listeners really understand how is that different from you know being a nutritionist as opposed to you're you're a nutritional biochemist and I'm I just would love to hear a bit more about that sure so uh yeah so I originally I originally studied nutrition and dietetics so that meant I could call myself a nutritionist uh and then I did a PhD in biochemistry so I combine the work I now do I combine my nutrition degree with my PhD in biochemistry And so what I do is I I consider the biochemical pathways that are being affected when someone is presenting with certain symptoms. So, for example, someone might might say, I don't sleep very well. There are at least 10 different reasons why someone might not be sleeping properly. What what would they be? Like, just give me, hit me up with three or four. (laughs) There's tons of people that aren't sleeping well at the moment. Yeah, so that's sort of where I'm going. So the... The road, we have to know what's created it, and I'll touch on some of those in two seconds. We have to know what's created something, any kind of dysfunction in the body, because the road in is the road out. So uh, when we're not sleeping properly, for example, it can be because we have high circulating levels of adrenaline. So adrenaline obviously is one of our stress hormones, and up until the very, very, very recent past in human evolution, adrenaline literally meant that our life was in danger. So these days we make adrenaline, everyone needs to block their ears right now because you're not going to like what I say, but we make adrenaline whenever we have caffeine and we make adrenaline when we perceive pressure and urgency and we make adrenaline when we are consciously or unconsciously worrying about what others think of us. They're the, they're the three main areas that lead us to make adrenaline these days. 
So the body has not yet learned to discern between the adrenaline we make when a car drives out in front of us and we have to suddenly slam on our brakes versus the adrenaline we make when we've had four coffees and we've got 600 unopened emails and we don't know when on earth we're going to get the time to deal with them. It's all the same to the body. So adrenaline doesn't want you to sleep deeply or, or restoratively because it wants to keep you ever so slightly awake because it thinks that your life's in danger. So high circulating levels of adrenaline, the consistent relentless production of adrenaline is one of the big things I think disrupting a lot of people's sleep these days. Mm. Uh, Another scenario is what I call sympathetic nervous system dominance. So the auto, there's different parts of the nervous system. One part is the autonomic nervous system, which we're not in control of. It's, it uh, has two branches, the sympathetic nervous system, which is the fight or flight response, and the parasympathetic, um, which is the rest, digest, repair, the calm arm of the nervous system, if you like. So another reason that we don't sleep so well these days is because we live constantly within that sympath- with that sympathetic nervous system activated. And one of the things to that we can do to, or one of the things that science currently has taught us that allows us to activate the parasympathetic nervous system, because remember I said we can't control it, the autonomic nervous runs itself, it, we don't boss it around. Mm. The only way we can influence it is through how we breathe. So when we extend the length of an exhalation, you activate the parasympathetic nervous system. Where So when you're talking to someone or you're sitting around a meeting table or you're on a Zoom call, quite often you can see that the only part of, of the person you're talking to, the only part that's often moving is the upper part of their chest and it's short, sharp, shallow mm. breaths. That's that's adrenaline driving that. That's You're in sympathetic nervous yes. system activation when that's happening. But when we slow down our breathing, like really slow it down and breathe, breathe more like maybe five or six times per minute instead of 20. Yeah. And when we and when we inhale, our belly pushes forward and we exhale and our belly shrinks back towards our spine. We move our diaphragm and that communicates safety to the body. So they're two really big areas that are leading people to not sleep well. It's it's uh, it's great, really, really helpful. And I do, do note that on these episodes, breathing is probably the number one factor uh, when we sort of talk about health and wellness, breathing is, seems to be the number one. Uh, so there's just some really great gutsy core themes kind of coming through as we sort of, we're now sort of at the end of season three and I'm starting to see sort of quite an amazing tapestry of, um, I guess, just the key elements, you know, that um, make up, you know, wellness in, in the whole sense. Because we've had, oh, you know, I love that. It's amazing. That? Yeah, yes. yeah. That like through. connection to nature, breathing would be two really big ones. Um, and then, of course, lots of nutritional conversation around plant-based, which I know you're a true fan of, uh, particularly with your BioBlends range. I can see that it's all plant-based and organic and it's all about what's um, you know in there as opposed to what's not in there. You've got to look look carefully, make sure that everything's from source and you know it's truly from nature. So uh, plant-based, too, has been quite a big conversation. Um, your three-pillar approach to health, which I believe is nutrition, you've got your biochemistry, um, pace, and emotions. So I just would love to hear a little bit more about this because every sort of expert brings expertise and they package it and they have their sort of own platform, if you like, their own way of communicating wellness. So I'd love to hear just a little bit more about your three-pillar approach. Oh, that's such a lovely question. Thank you. But so when I'm when I'm looking at the biochemistry, I'm there there are billions of biochemical reactions that go on and run us and drive how we feel and function and look every single second. So 
billions of reactions are going on every single second. And we don't have to instruct them, they're just occurring. But one biochemical reaction is where, sub, let's say, substance A gets converted into substance B, and then substance B will eventually get converted into substance C, and on and on it goes. It's mm. a constant cascade of change. So that's a biochemical reaction. But for those biochemical reactions to occur, we need nutrients because this is where the nutritional pillar comes in. So let's say cholesterol is the building block of all of our steroid hormones, estrogen, progesterone, and testosterone. So for the body to be able to convert cholesterol eventually into a big, long, silly word called pregnenolone, and then for pregnenolone, that eventually becomes progesterone in both men and women. And then at that point in the biochemical pathway, progesterone the, the, the pathways all split up. So progesterone either eventually gets converted into estrogen or it gets converted into testosterone or it gets converted into cortisol, one of our stress hormones and a powerful anti-inflammatory substance. Mm. So for that initial for the initial reactions to occur for the cholesterol to get converted eventually down into progesterone, we need nutrients like zinc, we need magnesium, we need essential fatty acids. So when someone was to, if they were to say to me, let's say I have high cholesterol, I have high levels of blood cholesterol and I have low levels of progesterone, there are, again, so many different reasons why that might be going on, but one of them could be that they're not getting enough zinc or magnesium or essential fatty acids so that the cholesterol is accumulating and the, if you can see the biochemical pathway like a river, it's not able to flow. So it's like someone built a dam wall and the cholesterol's sort of all held in the river or yeah. the water's up as cholesterol but if we put some zinc or magnesium or essential fatty acids whatever the person isn't getting enough of through their through the way they consistently eat mm. you might remove the damn wall and the cholesterol actually lowers because more of it's getting converted into their steroid hormones just as an example mm. so that's the way so i look for that so i look for where, what are the symptoms what are you what's showing up in your body and then i look for the biochemistry that is disrupted because of that and then I look for the nutritional components, what's lacking or what there's too much of that might be creating that and set about then altering that. And then, so that's the biochemistry and the, nu and the nutrition. And then the third part is the emotional part because let's say someone's really suffering with physical symptoms in their body and I explain something like I've just explained and so therefore I need you to have less of this and more of this and they are all motivated in the beginning and they think, yes, I'm really <laughs> going to get on top of this. And they go away and they do it for, say, three weeks. And then they have a conversation. Uh, for example, one of their colleagues might ring them and say, where's that work? I needed it yesterday. And we don't hear what someone says. We hear what we think they meant. Hmm. And so instead of hearing, well, you've heard their request for the work, but what you've also heard is, oh, they think I'm hopeless and that I'm not a hard worker or whatever it is. And so the advice that I've then given them to sort out their cholesterol, for example, that all goes out the window mm. because they've, they've perceived that someone is seeing them in a disapproving way and it'll often lead them to then, even with, the, you know, with decent advice, they'll then go and make all sorts of lousy lifestyle choices. So I try uh. to marry things to help people get their outcomes. Yeah, hence the, hence the psychology, you know, along with the actions and, yes. and, and the why. And as you say, none of all your thoughts are true. You know, do you react on how things should be or what's missing rather than what is? And I guess that's kickstarting the new brain, eh? That's sort of, that's, right. that's getting in, into that space. Um, 
So, you know, one of one of the topics that you've sort of addressed is the rushing woman's syndrome, and that's come off the back of one of your books, hasn't it? One of your best-selling books. Um, is that correct? This, this yes, theme. Right. Yeah. So I was interested. I mean, I listened to your TED talk on rushing woman's syndrome, and I totally, you know, I really did connect with the frantic life that a lot of a lot of us women have, where we are sort of running three or four jobs. Um, you know, we've got our sort of day job, and then we're you know, caregivers and we're homemakers. Um, and there's some a lot of truth in that. You know, how much of this do you think is an issue? Because there has been a lot of consciousness too in this space. Like it's not a it's not a new topic. Like it's something, for example, that I've been pretty aware of as a theme, as a running theme for about fifteen years. But you would be seeing a lot of people in burnout, women that are in burnout that are not the most, you know, authentic or better versions of themselves. So is a big piece of your work in this space? Yes, so yes, it is, Karen, absolutely. And it's I I, and I care about this so much because mm. when women's health falls apart, the whole world kind of falls apart. Um, and so I wrote a book. I think it's really important to clarify for listeners that rushing woman syndrome is not a health condition. It's the title of a book I wrote in 2011. And I wrote, I wrote that book in 2011 because of what I was seeing in my patients. I saw a really dramatic change in, in women's health. And then in 2019, I wrote a book called the invisible load and that went, so rushing woman syndrome explained more the physical symptoms of what happens when we're always in a rush and what to do about that and the way to support our physical health. Uh, and then the invisible load went much more into uh, the psychology of things, I guess, and to help people really understand their old brain and their new brain uh, and to be able to, well, yeah, become aware of our thoughts and to understand that not everything we think is true. So we might go, I ate too many chocolate biscuits. And then we'll put a comma in that sentence and follow it up with, therefore, I'm hopeless, I'm pathetic, and I have no willpower. And if you think that, you don't usually pause and go, hmm, is that true? (laughs) You just keep living your life. And so if, but that, so the first part of the sentence might be true. You might have eaten too many chocolate biscuits, but the second part isn't true. You make it up in an attempt to understand your behavior. You judge yourself. Instead, if we could go, I ate too many chocolate biscuits. If we need to follow it up with something, it would be far more helpful if we paused and went, I wonder what led me to do that. Hmm. Because the minute we judge ourselves, we go blind to any kind of insight. Whereas when we bring curiosity to a situation, we open ourselves to learn. And you might see that you ate too many chocolate biscuits because your blood sugar was really low and it was actually time for afternoon tea or dinner. Uh, Or you might see that you had a really tricky conversation or a meeting at work and someone said something and you put on a brave face at work, but it actually really hurt your feelings. And the response with the biscuits was really just to try to forget about that. So it helps you to, it, it really helps when you start to, when you train yourself to question your thoughts. And it's not necessarily, it doesn't come easily or naturally in the beginning, but it's like training for a marathon. We don't sit on the couch and then yeah. suddenly go, oh, I'll run a marathon today. We train mm-hmm. and we have to apply that same kind of thought, that that, that, that that same approach to our thinking. That's right. No, it's good. And I, and I really also found for myself some real insight around, you know, when you talk about stress and then the antithesis of stress isn't calm, it's trust. And it, it's that similar kind of dichotomy that you're sort of, you're talking about here. It's, it's sort of looking at the why. And when you stress, it's because you're sort of holding on and you're trying to often control things too that you probably can't control. But if you if you do sort of let things unravel, 
um, you know, there is some answers in that. You can't kind of hold on to absolutely everything. And I think that's where the trust sort of piece comes in. You talk a lot about weight loss. I'm really interested in this because, um, you know, my generation, um, we sort of look at, you know, weight loss is sort of calories in, calories out, you know, hit the pavements, do the run, you want to play, you know, you're going to pay. So, you know, it is sort of, and then you talked about swinging arms and doing Tai Chi and how your clothes were really loose. And I'm like, wow, wow's up, really? Uh, I mean, I was just kind of curious about that because, um, you know, as somebody who sort of works out quite intensively every day, um, the thought of actually doing something sort of that slow, I mean, you know, could be challenging for me, but this isn't about me, this is about you. Uh, I'm just interested in, in just how the body plays its part um, because you talk about it in a really sciencey way that cortisol essentially sort of fights uh, the way the body metabolises fat. And I've had quite a few eating coaches on that are sort of eating psychologists coaches and they talk about digestion and if you eat quickly your body simply just doesn't digest the food the goodness from the food if you eat in your car or you eat on the run that's been a running theme too in in these um, episodes so can you break that down because people crazy beasts like me out there that are you know hitting the pavements and boxing and sweating hard because we think because we had that bit of toast that's what we've got to do frame it up for me Sure, with pleasure. So it was my education as well that the only thing that influenced body shape and size was calories in versus calories burnt. Uh, and when you start working with people, you can see very quickly that sometimes that seems to be true and then other times that doesn't seem to be true. And, for example, I recall a woman I met who she trained, her dream was to do the New York Marathon. So she was running ridiculous amounts of kilometres every day in preparation for that. She was eating far fewer calories than she was burning when mm. we did all the maths of it. And she gained 12 kilos in her preparation for the New York Marathon, which from a calorie perspective made absolutely no sense. Uh, I had my own experience with it. So when I was at uni, I was a mad keen runner. So I'd run from at least an hour a day. I was slim, happy, healthy. And mm. I would never have said to you back then that I was running for weight maintenance or weight loss or anything like that. But I can see in hindsight I was doing it because I thought that that's what you had to do to stay where you were at because it was so drilled, like you're saying, it was so drilled into me that what basically you had to burn off whatever you ate. So uh, then I got a job uh, running a health retreat and I had to leave home, uh, leave my home very early in the morning to get into the middle of nowhere <laughs> to, wake, to wake all the guests up first thing in the morning and I wasn't such an obsessive runner that I was going to do it at 3am in the, in the dark. <laughs> so, uh, so my running fell by the wayside and I started, I had to, uh, my job was to wake people up and then we would do 30 minutes of Tai Chi standing on top of a beautiful rise. Uh, oh, I used to say mountain, but, it, mm. but it's not. It, compared to New Zealand, it's like just a little blip. <laughs> but we stand on top of this little hill uh, as the sun rose. It was very beautiful, but I'm sure most people know what Tai Chi is. It's basically a moving meditation. So you slowly move your arms, but you diaphragmatically breathe for the whole 30 minutes, but you're not burning a lot of calories. And then my next job for the day was to take the guests who hadn't exercised in a really long time on what was called the easy walk. So just 20 minutes over flat ground. So I didn't really break a sweat. Hmm. My point is that I went from being little miss runner, burning bucket loads of calories to teaching Tai Chi and doing a gentle walk. And my eating remained the same across this period. And yet once I started doing the Tai Chi, my clothes got looser and it fried my brain because mm. based on how I'd been educated, the opposite was supposed to happen. So it was that experience coupled with what I was seeing in more and more of my clients, including the marathon lady I just described, 
that led me to go back to my geeky biochemistry textbooks with the question in my mind, what leads the human body to get the message that it needs to burn fat and what leads the human body to get the message that it needs to store fat? And I put those answers into my first book, Accidentally Overweight, and one of my online courses. And so I show that there are nine factors that influence whether the body gets the message to burn fat or store it. You mentioned one earlier, which is cortisol. So cortisol being our chronic stress hormone, chronic stress for humans up until not very long ago involved floods or famines and wars. And in all of those scenarios, food was scarce and the body hasn't yet learned to discern between the cortisol we'd make if there was a famine or the cortisol we'd make if we're worrying, whatever our other long-term worries are, we might be worried about a particular relationship or the health of a loved one. Uh, we might have aging parents and we're very concerned for their well-being, our bank balance, whatever it is we're worried about. It's just all cortisol to the body and it says there's no food left. And so cortisol will then slow your metabolism down. And it does that because it's catabolic. It'll break your muscles down because muscles, the higher your muscle mass, the higher your metabolic rate. So if you break a bit of muscle down, you don't need as much fuel to keep you going. So it's trying to help you to survive because it thinks there's no food and it thinks if it puts a bit of extra flesh on your bones, uh, you might still be here once the food supply gets reinstated. The yeah. trouble is that a lot of people live like this now. So it's not just a fleeting three-month period where you're making an excessive amount of cortisol because most of our stress these days is psychological. It's, it's relentless. So a lot of people live uh, in that state uh, endlessly. So that's just one of the factors, but there are nine. And as I said earlier, the road in is the road out. So once you know which of the puzzle pieces are affecting you, you can then correct those. And I don't ever set out to actually address weight. I set out to address people's health and energy and weight loss is just a natural side effect True. once you address health and energy. That, that's true. Um, I mean, these nine elements, um, I'm just curious, do you mind sharing maybe three or four, just a sort of top oh, line? Okay. Yeah. Of course. No, I'll tell you all of them. Thanks. So, so calories is definitely one. Then stress hormones, the cortisol story we just talked about. Then our sex hormones. So you've got estrogen that needs the female frame to have additional fat in case reproduction occurs because when you first conceive, the body's going to supply a decent amount of that body fat that's stored to maintain that life so estrogen is one of the reasons why even say for a super fit uh in a super fit triathlete a female triathlete will have more body fat than a super fit male triathlete that's estrogen is responsible for that primarily uh, so estrogen is another factor then you've got your thyroid function then you've got your gut bacteria so it was research done in the early 2000s where they took two different broad groups of gut bacteria and showed that when you had more of a particular type of gut bacteria, it actually influenced what calories were worth. And they did it in a mouse model. So they, they stripped the, it sounds awful, I know, but they stripped the mice of their gut bacteria and they gave one group of mice a particular type and another group of mice a different type of gut bacteria. They fed them the exact same diet uh, and one group's weight stayed the same and the other group got chubby. So that was the beginning of us un starting to understand the way gut bacteria can influence what calories are actually worth. Uh, then you've got insulin, uh, the nervous system, and emotions. Mm. So the nine factors that will that will influence whether your body gets the message to store it or mm. let it go. Yeah, really interesting. And, and your book really drills into that, does it, with a lot of detail? 
Yeah, so Accidentally Overweight, the first book I wrote does, and uh, my online course for women, it's a nine-week online course for women, Is it goes into that with me sharing educational videos about mm. how all of that works and what to do about it. That sounds, it sounds really good. Are you a believer in superfoods? What are your thoughts? I think all whole real foods are superfoods. So I'm not a fan of suddenly branding one thing a superfood because I think there can be consequences to that that aren't so great for probably the people who grow it and also for human health because we need variety. Mm. But to me, even though it sounds really boring, but to me parsley is a superfood. Yeah. Uh, lemons are superfoods, but they sort of don't get a lot of airtime because they're not that cool. But um, all whole real foods, I think, are little superstars. Yeah, and I think you've touched on something there because, you know, there seems to be, it's a little bit like fashion. You know, I find foods are a little bit like fashion. They kind of, some foods ride the wave for a while and then you, remember it was all about kale, right? And now it's all about spinach. So things sort of seem to come and go. And I think I think your sort of earthy approach is probably a good mantra to live by. And I think diversity and colour, uh, right, seasonal produce is where you get a lot of the goodness from and that's also been a reoccurring theme even our microbiologists and our you know immunologists will talk about it in that in that way that diversity is really key to a daily to a daily diet um, just being close to Christmas, uh, you know, challenging because if, if people are trying to be consciously, you know, eating well, conscious eaters, um, how do they kind of get through the season uh, maintaining your health goals, but you've still got all these temptations? I mean, you talk about alcohol, you know, le- sort of less is more and also the same for caffeine. Um, so there's lots of, you know, alcohol around and champagne at the moment. How do you actually... Sort of, do do you believe, for example, in rewarding yourself a treat meal or a treat day out of the scheme of seven days? How do you tackle it? <laughs> I don't think in treats at all. Uh, I it's not because it means that you're sort of telling yourself on some level that you're breaking some rules. Whereas mm-hmm. I would say to you that what people refer to as those cheap meals or cheap snacks or whatever they call them, I would say that's just part of normal life. That's just part of healthy living. So part of where we've, I think, gone awry is we think that we've got to be perfect and it's where this dieting mentality has disrupted, I guess, our ability to look after ourselves because people will say, oh, I was on the wagon but I just fell off the wagon, whatever that is. There's no wagon to fall off. There's just life and it's what we consistently do. It's the way we consistently live that determines the quality of our life. I don't think anyone's ever going to stop eating hot chips, nor should they. They're delicious. Yes. But you have a really different quality of health if you eat hot chips 10 times a year versus twice a week every week. So it's the 80-20 rule, right? That's kind of what I'm hearing you saying. With how often we do things. Yeah. And I I try to get people, instead of going, oh, you're allowed to have it 80% of the time or whatever the numbers, whatever number you want to pick on, I try to not do it like that because otherwise it's still this equation and you're still keeping tabs on yourself. And one of the reasons I spend a lot of time in my courses and books explaining to people how their body works is you don't want to make half the choices you make when you understand, for example, how your liver works. You just don't want to do it to yourself. You don't want to do it to your extraordinary liver because it has so many tasks. Mm. And if you could just take a bit of a load off what you're asking the, the liver to do, your health and energy and your sleep and the way you're, the patience you're able to show others, all of that improves. Yeah. So it's more about, I think, I love to help people go, I want to look after this and I want to make it work as well as I can for as long as I can. 
And to do that, it means I need to have less of this. So rather than it coming from this place of I'm not allowed. Or denial. Yeah. Denial or that's bad. It's just I don't want that very often because I know that's not so great for my liver. But I do like the way you paraphrase it with that's life. You know, that, that what we're actually, it's not a wagon that we're falling off. It's just daily life. And, you know, the choices that you make today and tomorrow are the ones that shape your future. Um, but I do, I do feel like, you know, it's uh, challenging for a great many of us. Some people have a more of a self-destructive kind of mentality and they, they're not thinking about that wider good that you're talking about. Like you say to somebody who enjoys, you know, a bit of alcohol, they're not going to sort of worry about how their liver's functioning optimally because they're very much in the moment around how it makes them feel when they, when they drink like that. So, this is just leading me to the point that you're, you know, set out to educate and to inspire and to really create transformative change through, you know, education. And I can see that it's something that you're, you know, truly dedicated to um, and you've really done the work. So, you know, thank you so much for sharing your insights today. I just wanted to close off by hearing a little bit about what you're doing at the moment. So any new projects on the boil? Oh, thank you. I've just released some cards. They're called Condition Your Calm because I felt that (laughs) that would be highly useful uh, after the last little while. And they're just little bite-sized pieces of information to either educate people or some of them are designed to promote really deep reflection if, if, if people are up for it. But it's to help us change our psychology and the way we perceive and see things. So I've just released those cards, Condition Your Calm, uh, I have a new book bubbling away in my head, mm. uh, which is uh, it's ready to be born. I just need to carve out some space, uh, which I plan to do because I've realised I love being at home and yeah. <laughs> so uh, doing some more writing uh, at home uh, in the not-too-distant future, that will happen. And uh, I released a detox course this year to help people understand the truth about detox. Uh, and, yeah, I really love making online courses as well, so I want to help continue to to educate Mm. people i'll probably do another little online course i've got some ideas for that as well so nothing super in concrete but oodles of ideas yeah there's a lot ideas a lot going on there and do you think that covid uh just with these new plans do you do you think these plans have been sort of birthed out of the here and now that we're in this covid world and you know you've managed to kind of streamline some goals that are going to work for you in this environment at the moment very much, Karen, and uh, to yeah, it's so I've realised what a what a privilege it is to be able to work from home mm. and the joy I get from that, uh, and but but then still being able to do to I hope contribute to the quality of life for others through books and and um, through these online education programs. So yeah. yeah, it's been it's been one of the gifts of of having to stay home. Yeah, I love it. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. I've learned heaps just talking to you and I know that our listeners will be tuning in, those that love to hear you know, what you're up to. So thanks for making it so current and um, just so on point for us here at the At Source podcast. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you for your lovely questions. I, I love Oh, them. it's been really a great, great thank conversation. <laughs> yeah, great conversation. And I just wish you all the best over the festive season. Have a good break, a refreshing break. Thank you. I hope you get to do the same. Thanks so much, Libby. We'll be in touch. Thank you so much. Bye. Thanks for tuning in and joining our conversation and stay tuned for more episodes. Please rate, review and subscribe. Check out the show notes if you'd like to contact this episode's interviewee. 
at Source podcast does not accept any liability for the results of any actions taken or not taken upon the basis of information in this podcast or for any errors or omissions. Those acting upon information do so entirely at their own risk. We recommend that you seek professional assistance from certified doctors for your health and well-being issues.